casts your words behind him. We read it again in Daniel chapter 8 of this wicked man who casts your words to the ground. Uh, Lord, we do not want to be like those men. We want to be like those who treasure your word in our hearts and build our lives upon it. Not so long ago, uh, we visited my family uh, in our family in Dundee for a birthday meal. And as often happens when you're the in-law, son-in-law, you get sent for the extra chair up the stairs. And there I was uh, walking along the hallway, uh, passing the hall window with its full-length curtains, when all of a sudden one of the curtains flapped back wildly. And this grown man, stern-faced, rushed at me and, and roared at me. It wasn't an intruder. It was my brother-in-law, Kyle. Uh, but it didn't really matter who it was. It absolutely scared the wits out of me. And unknown to me, he had hidden himself behind this curtain when no one was looking. And there he was, this 34-year-old, sniggering behind the curtain at the thought of the scream of, or, of this poor victim who's about to be scared. And yes, I admit it, I did scream. Uh, but you would have too. Because that's what happens when something catches you by surprise and scares you a little bit. When you're unprepared for something frightening, you do scream in a moment of fear. Now, let me ask you this question. Let's replay that scenario. But this time, let's say I'm walking along the hallway and I see Kyle sneak behind the curtain. And then I see those muckle big boots sticking out from underneath the bottom of the curtain. What kind of difference do you think it would make as I approach that curtain? Do you think it would make any difference to my response when I see that curtain flap back wildly and have this grown man roar at me as he rushes at me? Think it would make any difference? Yeah. I'd be like, grow up. It wouldn't, it wouldn't scare me at all. Why? Why? Well, because I knew what was coming. I was going to be prepared for it. I wasn't going to be caught off guard. I wasn't going to be scared. I wouldn't scream like a three-year-old girl. I'd be far more composed precisely because I expected it. Knowing what awaits me makes all the difference as to how I deal with it. I'm settled when the curtain flaps back. I'm steeled. I'm unmoved by it because I'm ready for it. Otherwise, I would have freaked out. Now, the reason I start with that illustration tonight is because that's, I think, the picture, a picture of what Daniel 8 does for us. It takes something that would otherwise actually be quite scary, but it shows us that it's going to happen. And it prepares us for it. Daniel 8 is like the muckle boots sticking out of the bottom of the curtain. Of the something scary that lurks behind it. Now there are things that happen in this world, evil things, that can catch us off guard. That can make us scared. They can leave us feeling like Daniel felt actually at the end of this passage. Just appalled. Even sick 
went to his bed for a few days. All you want to do is pull the covers over your head and wish it all away. But Daniel 8 helps us see the kind of evil that lurks behind the curtain of history in particular and says to God's people, be on your guard. Be on your guard. So that you're not surprised when evil flaps back the curtain and roars at you and rushes at you. So Daniel 8 is meant to settle and steal us, God's people, for the future. So we're going to tackle this in two parts. The first part is by far the biggest part, the explanation of everything that's going on before we think about the practical lesson. But knowing what awaits you settles and steals you. That's, that's the summary of the sermon tonight. So if you don't remember anything else, knowing what awaits you settles and steals you. You with me? Good. I'll ask you that again halfway through. Uh, verses 1 and 2, in effect, help us to do what I did in the hallway peer down the hallway and see what's coming. And chapter 8 begins with Daniel peering through the hallway of time. It's amazing this. Uh, Here is a man who lives in Babylon at the time of Belshazzar, uh, the the king of Babylon. Uh, And yet God somehow, in verse 2, places him in the future. That's what it means when it says, I saw myself in the citadel of Susa. Now, Susa was a big city and a royal residence for Darius, the Medo-Persian king, but actually, at the time of Daniel's vision, Susa didn't exist. It's kind of like this Qatari city of Lucille. Have you heard about Lucille? It was in the news again this week. Uh, Lucille is the city that will host the World Cup final in the year 2022. Do you know why people are a bit worried about that? Nothing to do with trying to fix who's going to get the World Cup. It's the fact that the city does not exist. There's nothing there. It's sand. It was the same for Daniel. As he thought ahead, he is all of a sudden in this place called Susa. It doesn't even exist yet. God is, his, God is giving him a vision of something that is to come. And true enough, it did. Historians, archaeologists will gladly say that. Yeah, of course. Susa was a big city and a royal residence for Darius, king of the Medo-Persian Empire. So God gives Daniel here, get this, supernatural sight of a city that has no foundations yet. The other thing we see is that God not only places him in his vision in the future, he actually shows him the future. Now, I am a sucker, I have to admit, for history documentaries. I wish I had the History Channel. Uh, But Daniel's vision acts like the kind of documentary that you would watch on the History Channel. And between verses 3 and 12, he's basically given 400 years of Middle Eastern history in one episode. 400 years. It's quite amazing when you think about that. It would be like Shakespeare sitting down to watch a program on his telly about the rise of the British Empire that kind of segued into the the, the discovery, the, the development of the Americas, and then narrating the War of Independence followed by a narration of two cataclysmic wars based in Europe. It's fascinating to consider. But this that we're looking at tonight isn't history past, it's history to be written. Which Daniel is, do you see what God is showing us in and through this to begin with? God reveals the future to settle and steal his people in the present. And as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, this is what apocalyptic literature does for us. It's generally written in kind of pictorial terms, it displays things with images that seem a bit confusing. 
probably because the guy who's writing it doesn't really have much of a category for writing about the kind of things that he's seeing. That's why you often say, I looked and I saw, and it was, it was like, it was like this. We're given insight into the future, and that's what God does for his people. He did this for Daniel and for God's people in, under the old covenant through Daniel's vision. And God has issued similar warnings for us, his new covenant people, through John's vision in the book of Revelation. That vision was written towards the end of the first century during a time of intense persecution. I was reading just the other day, Fox's book of martyrs started from the beginning. Wow. Talks about the slaughter of Christians from the very beginning. But it's amazing to see, even in those accounts, what settled and steeled them. A vision of the unspeakably glorious Jesus Christ, which is precisely what you're given in John chapter one, uh, Revelation chapter one, by John. Why this picture of this heavenly prince, this heavenly king, with feet glowing bronze, ready to trample and come with judgment? It's to remind God's people on earth that there is a king who is in control, a sovereign one who still reigns despite the evil and suffering we experience in our world. We need that vision to settle and steal us for what is to come. And how foolish we are for avoiding books like Daniel and Revelation in our readings. We need it because history has a habit of repeating itself. Now to the vision itself. We'll peer down the hallway. Let's look behind the curtain. In verses 3 to 4, we have a ram with two horns. And thankfully, we have an interpreter again in this passage who explains what these symbols are careful reading of the text would take you to verse 20 where we read the two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of media and persia and there's a map where you can see the the stretch of the the medo-persian empire Uh, remember daniel is serving at this time a babylonian king belshazzar and this interestingly enough is before the events of chapter 5 where chapter 5 if you remember this is where Belshazzar is sitting in his palace. He's having a right rocking party. And uh, he's got some uh, cups, goblets or something from the, 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 from the temple in Jerusalem that they have ransacked. And he is committing sacrilege essentially by drinking and getting drunk from this, these, these articles. And then he sees this hand writing on the wall. The color drains from his face and it basically says, Belshazzar, your days are numbered. You've been weighed and you've been found wanting. And yet, this is all happening before this point. So that when it comes to that point, Daniel knew who was next to rule the known world. It was the Medo-Persians. It was common knowledge that the Medes rose first, followed by the Persians. They kind of joined together. Really, the Persians defeated them a little bit and they said, hey, why don't we join up? And uh, Which is probably a wise thing to do on their part. But the Persians then became the dominant partner hence the sequence of the kind of strange horn growth that you saw in verse 3 verse 4 then explains the activity of this ram charges round in all directions that's what's depicted on the map it stretches out across a vast area of land it became great as it said verse 4 he did as he pleased and became great he was a mighty king and a law unto himself and you're thinking whoa this is someone bigger than babylon And then you see in verses 5 to 8, despite the success, you've got this this goat 
a shaggy goat, a kind of unicorny shaggy goat. You see how strange it is? Um, you'll not see one of those in Edinburgh Zoo climbing the trees. But once again, we have interpretation in verse 21. The goat represents the Greek empire and the first king. Well, we know him to be Alexander the Great. And any historian will tell you that Alexander the Great conquered the known world with amazing speed. Usain Bolt holds a record for the 100 meters. He did it in 9.58 seconds. The most interesting fact about that was that he spent 5.29 of those 9.58 seconds not even touching the ground. That's fast. Okay, that's what this is supposed to point us to in verse 5 where it describes Alexander's conquest where he crossed the whole earth without even touching the ground. He attacked the Medo-Persian ram furiously, wiped wiped out this seemingly impervious force in only three years. And verse 8 says, he became very great. Are you with me? Are you bored yet? Did you like history at school? Good. History wasn't taught like this, was it? Oh, we might have paid a little bit more attention. In no time at all, this goat is gone. He's broken off. Keep that in mind. Verse 8, at the height of his power, Alexander became sick when he was 33 and died. And when his kingdom fell apart, it was divided into four regions, represented by the four horns, Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. You with me? Good. Here is another thing, though, that steadies the faith of believers in uncertain times like these. Let's face it. Three empires in a short period of time is pretty uncertain time. Kingdoms come and kingdoms go. It was a message that we heard again and again in the early chapters of Daniel, especially with Nebuchadnezzar, who was establishing himself as this awesome king who was going to live forever. But no, kingdoms come and kingdoms go. Wars come, wars go. Nations rise against nation. It happens all the time. Jesus warned us about this himself in Mark chapter 13, a passage which is very apocalyptic in its writing. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, he says, do not be alarmed. You hear it again? Be be settled and steeled. Be ready for this. Do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. In other words, this is just the way it is in history. This is not the end. You'll know the end when it comes nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings, the beginnings of birth pains. It's kind of a hard reality, isn't it? That's the way it is in our world, in a fallen, sinful world where the people of the world and the world itself are, if you like, tainted, broken, dysfunctional because of sin, because of the fall. These are just the beginnings of birth pains. And my wife has been in labor for 11 days of her life. And, you know, birth pains and labor can take a long time. Bad things happen, but don't be surprised. Hear Jesus' words. Be on your guard. We live out our faith in a broken world. And we must, every night, lay our heads on the soft pillow of God's sovereignty. And trust the power of God over the coming and going of kings and nations. Trusting that God's plan is never in jeopardy, even when opposition to God comes. And the persecution of his people becomes appallingly brutal, as it did with this little horn. Let's talk about him. 
because he's the scariest thing that lurks behind the curtain. He's the fierce-looking king of verse 23, the master of intrigue, a master of trickery. He's a cunning man. Now, actually, the interesting thing here is, remember two weeks ago when we were in Daniel 7, we had this broad-spectrum picture, a widescreen lens of these four empires, Babylon, Medo-Persia, we reckon Greece and Rome. Others have one or two things where they want to stretch out. It doesn't matter. What we're zeroing in on in chapter 8 is a kind of, if, if that was a Google Earth view, this is a Google Maps view. You're down. You're looking at a couple of places. And people who have looked at this have no doubt that this guy, this little horn, is the Seleucid ruler Antiochus IV, or as he called himself, Antiochus Epiphanes. Now, compared to the likes of Darius of the Medo-Persian Empire... And compared to the likes of Alexander the Great of the Greek Empire, Antiochus IV, as he is also known, doesn't really make the headlines with historians. But the interesting thing is this is history from God's perspective, not theirs. And when you see what he does, when you see his actions and his attitudes, you know fine and well you're dealing with pure evil and why we're reading about it here. Because it is the kind of evil that leaves you appalled. Look with me at verse 9. It says of this horn that he grew in power toward the south and to the east and ominously toward the beautiful land. And in verse 10, grew until it reached the host of heaven. Now, the host of heaven is often a phrase that's used to, to denote angels in the Bible. You may be heard of that. But actually, in this passage, as in others in Daniel, it actually refers to God's people. You see that in the interpretation in verses 23 to 25 a little bit later on. But the host, when we talk about the host of heaven, we're talking about God's people. They are the target. And look at the actions of this little horn. We considered it a little earlier. When you combine the vision of verses 9 to 12 and the interpretation of 23 to 25, it is a staggering picture, really, of a man who tried to take the place of God and persecute the people of God. Look at what he did. He wanted to put an end to God. Verse 11 says he set himself up against the prince of hosts. That's God. Verse 25 says the same thing. And we know that at the height of his tyranny, this guy called Antiochus had his royal mint stamp Theos, Antiochus, Epiphanes on every coin. Do you know what it means? Antiochus. God revealed. He thought he was God in the flesh. He thought he was a walking, talking embodiment of the Greek god Zeus. That's what he thought. But not only does he want to put an end to God by setting himself up in the place of God, he wants to put an end to God's people. Verse 10 says, he throws down God's people and tramples them under a foot. History tells us that over a period of three days, he killed 40,000 with cunning and craftiness sent his chief tax collector into the city with a bunch of people who were apparently tax collectors and in a time when they were not expecting it turned on them and ambushed the city and slaughtered many he also insisted on a forced paganization program that is everyone even in Jerusalem needed to fit into Greek culture if you resisted you paid the price sounds a bit like what's going on in the Middle East just now. He wants to put an end to the sacrificial system. We see that in verse 11. Actually, to remove the very thing that maintains God's relationship with his people. That's brutal. Verse 11b, he wants to put an end to the temple. 
The sanctuary was thrown down. So he wants to remove the dwelling place of God with his people from among his people. And one time he did storm the temple in Jerusalem, desecrated the Holy of Holies, and set up a Greek uh, a statue of Zeus in the Holies of Holies and sacrificed a pig on the altar. That's what verse 13 calls the rebellion that causes desolation. Or even as Jesus refers to it later, the abomination that causes desolation. That phrase basically means a vulgar atrocity that leaves in its wake a state of complete destruction. It is. It is. You don't even have a word to describe how appallingly disgusting and offensive that is. It is brutal. That's not even good enough. And then we see he wants to put an end to the Bible. Truth was thrown down, verse 12, to the ground. And if you were caught with one, you were a goner. Well, it sounds very like the persecution that some of our brothers and sisters face in places like northern Iraq just now, northern Syria just now, northern parts of Nigeria just now, North Korea just now, all sorts of places where restrictions are placed and God is removed and God's people trampled down. In the first John, we have a warning about a man called the Antichrist. The Apostle Paul talks about him as well in 2 Thessalonians 2, and he calls him a man of lawlessness who similarly sets himself up in direct opposition to God. I suppose if there was ever an Old Testament example of the Antichrist, this is it. In Antiochus Epiphanes, and all the things that he does, it's terrible. John does tell us, though, that we are awaiting the final Antichrist, although many Antichrists have come, he says. Antiochus was certainly a type of the kind of person who stands against God and persecutes God's people. It's sobering stuff, isn't it? It's the kind of stuff even we were thinking about this morning. In Matthew chapter 10, they hated me. They hated me. They're going to hate you. Others, we shouldn't be surprised at the things that we could face as Christians. Now, if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian, uh, you might think that's pretty brutal. That Antiochus Epiphanes is a pretty evil guy. And I agree. He, he, he is. But there's something that those of us who put our faith in Jesus Christ here tonight have already acknowledged that actually there is a little bit of Antiochus Epiphanes in all of us. Although we're not, I can confidently say, crazed megalomaniacs. <laughs> At least I hope not. But the Bible teaches us that when we choose to reject God in unbelief, in simple terms, we are setting ourselves up against God. Uh, we might as well have changed our surname to Epiphanes. <laughs> I'm my own God, I'm going to do it my way. That's the way I lived before I became a Christian. But that's not what God made me for. That's not what God made you for. Uh, and that, to live in that way, is sinful. And think also about what you may do with God's words given to us in the Bible. Do you do an Antiochus and throw them to the ground like litter? If so, Psalm 50 quotes God as saying, You hate my instruction and cast my words behind you. Verse 22 of the same Psalm says that without God, you have no one to rescue you. So actually, it doesn't make sense to throw these words away and trample them to the ground that's why we who believe in Jesus Christ have at some point in the past recognized the sinfulness of sin 
We've acknowledged that that sinfulness is in us. We've come to know it through reading the Bible together and helped by other people who believe it and preach it to us. And we've confessed it. And what's happened? We've been washed clean. We've been granted forgiveness of sin. And we have, even with the knowledge of the fact that this life might be costly and the Christian life might be hard, we have recognized that you can give me a million of everything else that I've ever had and Jesus is better and better by far. And that's why we followed him. And I would encourage you, if you're not a Christian, please do come and chat with us. Um, and, or maybe you come with a friend having chatted many times. Put your faith and trust in him. If you confess your sins, he'll receive you. He'll forgive you of your sins and give you life in his name. It's beautiful. It's our only hope. Our only hope, not only for this life, but the life to come. Brothers and sisters who do know Jesus, what we have heard described in this text, really, we've seen on our TVs recently, haven't we? Mosul and places like it. God's people crushed, God's word thrown to the ground, people prevented from worship, slaughtered in worship. I hope, I hope, I hope, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Matthew 10 that we've looked at in the morning services, what you've seen on your TVs has really helped you to pray for the persecuted church. It's really opened our eyes. I hope it makes us feel for them more. And I hope it makes us cry out, how long, O Lord? When is this going to end? Because that's the cry we hear in verse 13. In verse 13, you were introduced to this, to an angel who, who comes and the question is, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning and all this the list of persecution is given. Now, don't misunderstand this. He's not asking how long until this happens. He's asking how long will it last? And we know that because the interpreter, the angel Gabriel in verse 17 says, understand the vision concerns the time of the end. Now, again, be careful with that. That doesn't mean the, the end of time. It means the end of the matter that we're looking at. That's what it meant in the Hebrew. The end of the persecution under the little horn is basically what it's talking about. And tucked away in the explanation of this vision, we find another thing. Another thing, as well as seeing what lurks behind the curtain in that way, this is another thing that settles and steals God's people in the face of hardship. And one of the things that we see is that God sets a limit on the persecution. In verse 14, we have this number 2,300. It's talking about evenings and mornings and that's how Hebrews count days you see that in Genesis 1 now should it be taken literally as six years and four months round about that or symbolically in other words it's limited in days there is an end point I don't know um, four you know six years and four months would be eight short of the the symbolic number for completion seven which would communicate that it's a limited period of time, but even if it was 2,300 literal days, it would still communicate a limited period of time. So that's the final word on the matter. But in any case, time is limited. Time is limited. God sets a limit on the persecution. Isn't that good to know? Many of you know my love for dogs. I've seen that with tongue-in-cheek because I really... yeah. I don't. Anyway, it's not about dogs. Anyway, have you ever heard of a thing called a dog spike? 
kind of serves in the same way as what happens if you go to Morrison's or Tesco's or something like that. And you, they t- you know those people that, that tie up a dog outside and as you're walking past it, nips at your heels or barks at you. So you know those pleasant, lovely, little fluffy things? Yeah? Okay. A dog spike is one of these things where you basically take a spike and you hammer it into the ground and the dog's lead is around it. So you can, if you've got a big back garden, this is, a, this is an ideal thing. If you've got a dog with a propensity to jump fences, this is a good thing for you to buy. Amazon, 15 pounds. Hammer it in and then the dog is limited in its rain, range. It can go far, as far as it can go before it gets a wee <coughs> yank on the neck. I'm joking. Uh, but this is the thing. There is a limit. A dog spike limits it in the same way that tying the leash to a pole or something like that when you go into the shops limits it and I think this is the thing that we're helped to see in Daniel 8 but God sets a limit on the persecution the Bible tells us in the New Testament that your enemy the devil prowls around like a lion looking for people to devour that doesn't sound pleasant but the truth is God determines the reach of his reins and the ferocity of his roar like the dog spike Therefore, says Peter, resist him and do what? Stand firm. Be steeled in your faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And, good news, the God of all grace who called you to his what? Eternal glory. In other words, something after this. Eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while. That could be insensitive to someone who's going through a really hard time. A little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Revelation 13 with the two beasts, the beast of the land and the beast of the sea that come up, almost a composite of all four beasts from Daniel 7, provide for us a picture of, you know, a really scary picture again. One who comes with bloodthirstiness and one who comes with a kind of subtle, hey, I'm your best mate, and then stabs you in the back kind of thing. There's little depictions, if you like, of the two beasts. But Revelation 13, at the end of that, chapter, verse 10, comes, comes around to say, this calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. Knowing that God sets a limit, even on the persecution, serves us well to settle and steal us. So this thing that jumps out from behind the curtain to scare you, it's going to have a limited time, a limited span of time. Another thing that we see is that God has his hands on the wheel of human history. Where do we see this? Well, verse 24 says that this little horn will become strong, not by his own power. And verse 25 towards the end says of the little horn that he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The inference is that God controls the start and end of it all. We saw that also in verse 8, further up, of this Greek king becoming very great at the height of his power, being broken off. I don't think that's a reference to him being defeated, for we know Alexander died. God controls the start and the end of it all. This can be a hard thing for us to figure out. Do I know why? Do I know? Do I figure? Do I know all the answers to all the questions? Absolutely not. I'd probably cry as much as you cry at some of the things that go on in the world. But we do know that He is in control of it. He's certainly not responsible for the evil actions of. 
people, but still it's not out with his sovereign control. In fact, it teaches us, the Bible teaches us that he somehow has a purpose in it. Even this time of crushing for God's people in this situation has a specific purpose to it. Verse 12 actually hints that it's because of their rebellion that the host of the saints, the daily sacrifices were given over to Antiochus. Those are tough words. And the reference to rebellion and wrath in the text. Well, that's not the only reason why people suffer. So I wouldn't want anyone to go out of here thinking tonight that, oh, something bad has happened to me, therefore I must have committed a sin in some particular way. It doesn't work like that. It's not true of Job. He went through the ringer, but he was known as a righteous man. We don't know the reason why hardships come our way. Certainly the Lord disciplines us because he loves us, as Hebrews will tell us, but it's not always the reason for it. But what we do know is that hardships do come our way, sometimes out of the evil and ugliness of evil, the sinfulness of other people. But what we do know is that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purpose. And though we might not be able to give a clear-cut answer on why things happen exactly the way we do, we want to be settled. We want to be steeled. And we want to recognize that actually, I wouldn't want it any other way than for God to be in control. Or for God to be the one who sends his son Jesus to enter into our suffering and hardship, to experience it for himself, and to go through suffering and then glory and then take us with him into it. Knowing what awaits you. This is what Daniel 8 does. Knowing what awaits you, knowing what lurks behind the curtain, settles and steals you for hardship and persecution when it comes. There was a strong word this morning from Matthew 10. There was a strong encouragement for us to recognize the fact that we don't face extreme persecution because of our beliefs. We have a remarkable freedom. I walked to church tonight with my Bible in my hand, swaying as I walked. I clocked a couple of people clocking it. But I wasn't thrown to the ground. There was no police car zoomed up beside me and threw me into the back. We're not facing that kind of persecution, though I know we face, each of us, hardships of various kinds. But we should be prepared for hardships. Live long enough, says Don Carson, you will suffer in some way. What settles and steals us? Passages like this. So what should we do when we're told things like this? Well, first of all, never forget it. <laughs> always remember it Daniel himself was told to seal up this vision for another day the day would come when Israel would really 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 need this revelation 160 years before Jesus when this guy Antiochus was running right we should never forget it because there will be if we haven't suffered yet or are not in the midst of suffering there is a day coming when we will need it secondly Go about your business. Do what Daniel did in verse 27. Though he was hit by it, you've got to be rocked by it. Like Daniel 7, you're supposed to be a little bit scared. You're supposed to feel. These are evocative pictures. 
hard teachings. But having felt the impact of God's word, we are to get up and go about the king's business. So you get up tomorrow, you go to work. You're not going to school. No, you're not going to work either. Tuesday, you get up, you do what you're going to do. You're, you're, you're on your guard though. You're prepared. You're on your guard when you read the paper. On your guard when you see breaking news on your computer screen. You're on your guard for the next onslaught of evil, whatever comes up. On your guard next time you meet members of your own family or friends when they're ready to say something harsh against you because of what you believe. But remember this, God has enabled us to see the feet of evil lurking behind the curtain. He's prepared us for life in this world. And just this week I read in John 15 of Jesus preparing his disciples before, before, he's, before he goes to die on the cross. He, re, he reminds them of the fact and warns them of the persecution to come, much like John, uh, Matthew chapter 10. But in chapter 16 and verse 1, Jesus says this, all this I have told you so that you will not go astray. In other words, don't be freaked out by it. Don't go astray. Don't drop your faith. Don't shake your fist at God. But even in the darkest times, and darkest valleys, even when he seems far away, trust that God is in control. Jesus says, I have told you these things so that when the time comes, you will remember what I warned you. So what Daniel does for the Old Testament people of God, Jesus does for us. Knowing what awaits you settles and steals you to face what is to come. Let's bow our heads and let's pray.